Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels who took the photograph, which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. Hello and welcome to episode 50, our half century of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been a good week for financial crime news this week, especially if we include some stories which came in at the tail end of last week. Lots on fraud, money laundering and a roundup of this week's cyber attack news. So let's make a start as usual. The links to the principal stories are available in the podcast description. We'll start with sanctions. It's been a bit of a quiet week for sanctions, nothing major, but we'll start with news of a denial. The denial comes from the Haas Formula One team, which has dismissed a report that it's broken sanctions by providing machinery to Russia. The activity, which has been strenuously denied, would be in breach of the extensive US sanctions imposed on dealings with Russia following its invasion of Ukraine. The rest of this week's sanctions news is really made up of announcements from the UK government relating to Russia. First, the UK Home Office has announced that the Russian elites, proxies and oligarchs task force, REPO, has worked in coordination with other international agencies to block or freeze more than £48 billion worth of Russian assets. Indeed, the UK alone has frozen more than £18 billion worth of Russian assets. This is something we'd reported previously on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, but the link to this most recent announcement you can find in the podcast description. Secondly, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation has updated its enforcement and monetary policy guidance, and it can be accessed in the podcast description the link to the government guidance and a useful summary of it all by the international law firms Baker and McKenzie and another by McFarlane's can also be found in the podcast description. A couple of other interesting bits of news first. The United Kingdom Supreme Court has granted Ukraine permission to challenge a bond issue where the sole subscriber was the Russian Federation. The Supreme Court denied the trustee, there was a trustee in place for the management of the relationship between the issuer and the single subscriber, denied the trustee summary judgment and permitted Ukraine to defend the action which the trustee will now presumably commence. The link to the full judgment of the United Kingdom Supreme Court and the press summary are available in the podcast description. A second final bit of news Here's another story on the impact of EU sanctions on the Russian economy. Uh, as I've said before now, I tend to avoid these stories since some will be motivated by one side or the other and the information cannot always necessarily be trusted. I've cited one before which was an academic analysis of the impact generally of these sanctions, but this one is linked specifically to the EU sanctions regime. Well, I think it's worth reading. It's an interesting blog. It's published on the London School of Economics blog page penned by Gubard Iboglu. I hope I've pronounced that properly, but I probably haven't. Anyway, the link to it is in the podcast description. That is it for sanctions this week. And now we turn to consider fraud. 
Fraud news this week is a case of quality, not necessarily quantity. First to the UK and a couple of warnings have been issued. The Financial Conduct Authority has issued a warning over possible scam correspondence purporting to be from Oak Fund Services, Guernsey Limited. This genuine company, who's apparently been misrepresented, has stated that it did not send the letters or the correspondence. The link to the warning is in the podcast description. The other sort of warning comes from Ofcom, which has published the results of research which it commissioned into the scale and impact of online fraud. There's a lot to the report, but some of the headlines are Nearly 43 million UK adult internet users have encountered suspected scams online, roughly around 87%. Among those who were victims and lost money, one in five were left over £1,000 out of pocket. Majority of online users think tech firms have responsibility to act to tackle the problem. Nearly half of participants in the study, around 46%, said they had been personally drawn in by an online scam, while two in five knew someone else who'd fallen victim. That's a bit worrying as a statistic to me, that nearly half said that they'd been personally drawn in by some scam. A quarter of those who said they'd encountered online scams had lost money as a result, with a fifth being scammed out of £1,000 or more. More than a third, 34% of all victims, also reported that the experience had an immediate negative impact on their mental health. Indeed, that doesn't surprise me at all increasing to nearly two-thirds among those who'd lost money. The lack of trust that you would have in certain offers would be greatly compromised. Anyway, the whole thing can be viewed in glorious Technicolor on Ofcom's website, the link to which is in the podcast description. There is also a link to advice which is presumably allied to this story on how to protect yourself from online fraud. Please share that with friends, family and enemies, since nobody should be a victim of fraud, and frankly, it'll be the gift that keeps on giving. To the US now, where a Florida regional bank manager has been sentenced to 10 years' imprisonment for participating in a conspiracy to defraud the Paycheck Protection Program out of loan proceeds. It's yet another case, sadly, of fraud on COVID-19 relief, which we cover all too often on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. There's also, if we stick with the US, uh, the publication of the FBI's annual Internet Crime Report that was published this week. The headline figures from the report indicate that $10 billion was lost through online scams in 2022, at least among those that were actually reported to the FBI. This is the highest loss since 2017-2018. The data pinpoint scams against the elderly as being especially prevalent, which can't really come as a surprise since targeting the vulnerable is often a key strategy of these folk. But those in their 30s filed the most complaints, interestingly. In all, this age group, that is those aged 30 to 39, made 94,506 complaints, amounting to 1.3 million billion rather dollars of losses, 
while there were only 88,262 complaints among the over-60s. Now, the over-60s is a broad category. It's anyone up to 90, I suppose. But their losses accounted for 3.1 billion. I think that's explicable on the basis that it's a much larger category. The richness of the full report can be enjoyed at the link in the podcast description. Back to, the, back to the UK now for a little light reading where the House of Lords Fraud Act 2006 and Digital Fraud Committee has published Her Majesty Government's response to the committee's report Fighting Fraud, Breaking the Chain. You can get the report from the link in the podcast description. And finally, on fraud this week, there's a seminar on the topic of protecting the EU's financial interests, workshop on recent legal anti-fraud research, which is being held on the 24th and 25th of April at the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Crime, Security and Law. This is pertinent given the recent action taken against fraud on the EU's various funds and links to information about the event can be found in the podcast description. Now to bribery and anti-corruption. The most significant piece of bribery and anti-corruption news this week is the publication by Trace International of its Global Enforcement Report for 2022. The key findings are, first, there was a slight uptick in the number of US enforcement agency actions concerning the bribery of foreign officials in 2022, though that in itself did little to have set the downward trend beginning in 2018. Non-US enforcement agency actions concerning bribery of foreign officials continued on a downward trend. The 2022 GER also observes a drop in the number of open foreign bribery investigations being conducted worldwide. This is caused largely by older investigations being dropped from the GER's tally after 10 years of inactivity, though it may also suggest a, combi- a continued slowdown in the overall rate of replenishment for foreign bribery investigations. The 2022 GER finds Brazil currently to be the most active of the non-US jurisdictions, although I think Ukraine has been doing an awful lot recently as well, having surpassed China last year in bringing enforcement actions for domestic bribery by foreign corporations. Brazilian enforcement agencies also lead in the number of open investigations concerning domestic bribery from US-based companies. The extractives and construction sectors remain the most heavily investigated and prosecuted by agencies outside of the United States, with extractives being the more common target with respect to bribes paid outside of the enforcing jurisdiction and construction more common with respect to bribes paid within the enforcing jurisdiction. US enforcement agencies stand out for maintaining a large number of investigations in the financial sector, almost on par with the number of investigations into the extractive sector. In fact, it's interesting that comment about the extractive sector because of the significant bribery findings which have been made in the last few years in relation to companies involved, particularly in the extractive sector. The Global Enforcement Report is available free to download, but you do have to join a mailing list. Worth it, in my view. Link is in the podcast description. That's it for bribery. Said it was a bit brief, but it was a bit interesting as well. Money laundering now. 
a roundup of a good range of stories, actually. We'll start with news that the Financial Action Task Force has updated its guidance on the beneficial ownership of legal persons by amendments to Recommendation 24 by, quotes, requiring countries to ensure that competent authorities have access to adequate, accurate and up-to-date information on the true owners of companies. Further, the FATF has also published the latest version of its amended regulations, or recommendations rather. The amendments were put in place last month and have now been published. Links to both documents are available in the podcast description. To the UK now, and the Office for Professional Body Anti-Money Laundering Supervision, OPBAS, which has published its Multi-Professional Body Supervisor Project on Trust and Company Service Providers, TCSP, risk. The key findings of the project are, first, most PBS is have assessed the TCSP risk within their own supervised population as relatively low. PBS, which is, of course, Multi-Professional Body Supervisor, PBS, views company formation as a higher risk TCSP service. PBSs had different views on the higher risk and low risk indicators of TCSP services. PBSs did not demonstrate a consistent understanding of the TCSP supply chain risk. PBSs have undertaken proactive work to increase their understanding of TCSP risks and verify TCSP services provided. Technological solutions are increasingly being considered by PBSs as part of their approach to identify and assessing risk. Greater sharing of TCSP intelligence and relevant information between PBSs, law enforcement and other supervisors would support a better system-wide approach to TCSP supervision. Some PBSs do not or could not readily analyse their enforcement or SAR, that suspicious activity report data, to extract TCSP-specific insights. Nearly there. The depth of data PBSs requested relating to TCSP services from their supervised populations varied. PBSs' use of companies' house data varied when assessing potential TCSP risks And finally, frequency of engagement with HMRC's register appears to vary significantly across individual PBSs. The full project document, frankly, which is worth it, especially if you work in that sector, can be viewed at the link in the podcast description. Sticking with the UK, the UK Financial Intelligence Unit has published its updated guidance on submitting better quality suspicious activity reports, or SARS, The UKFIU website is not particularly user-friendly and contains some dead links, so I put a feather in my cap for finding this one, but the link to it is in the podcast description. And finally, on money laundering this week, Elizabeth Rosenberg, who is the Assistant Secretary for the US Department of the Treasury's Office of Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes, has been making comments to a banking round table in Sydney, Australia, about illicit financial issues. What is said is not lengthy, so the link to the comments in the podcast description should last barely the length of a reasonably sized breakfast croissant. Enjoy. Now we turn to our usual roundup of cyber news, and there's, as ever, a good range. After that lull a few weeks ago, the hammock, there was 
well, there's been a bit of an uptick, actually. We start this week with news that the African Union has suffered a cyber attack. The attack affected African Union data centers, but cloud services were unaffected but inaccessible. In Brussels, the CHU Saint-Pierre Hospital has been the subject of a cyber attack. It seems that the hospital was, however, prepared, given the risk of such an attack has increased because other hospitals across Belgium had also been victims to cyber attacks. Savvy cyber risk management. Well done to them. Good to see. The Cyprus Land Registry has suffered a cyber attack on its website and systems. GCSE Game World, the computer games company, has, it said this week, been the subject of multiple cyber attacks over the last year. The company is Ukrainian, so it's believed that the attacks have been coming from Russia. Latitude, the Australian credit provider, has suffered a cyber attack in which customer data has been stolen. In fact, I read as well that some of the customers have been victims of multiple data attacks on Australian corporations. Bit of bad luck there. Lansing Community College in the US has suffered a cyber attack on Thursday and Friday this week. Classes were apparently cancelled. Hitachi Energy Group was hit by a cyber attack on Friday, which has compromised some employee data. Minneapolis Public Schools have admitted that data relating to current and former staff, students and parents has been posted to the dark web following a cyber attack last month. Although I understand from the many news stories that I've read on this that they are working hard to recover that information and continue to investigate what may have caused it. Sticking with schools, this time a school in the UK in Horsham in Sussex, which has suffered a malicious cyber attack. Frankly, I find it odd to see it described as a malicious cyber attack because surely there can't be any other kind of cyber attack. But there has apparently been no compromise of sensitive data in that case. Splunk with Jamf Threat Labs, the digital and cyber resilience organization, has identified in a recent report that 31% of organizations identified in a poll had users fall for a phishing attack. That is the vulnerability of human interactions with technology, usually through email. This may be attributable, uh, attributable, it suggested, to the rise in remote working, or might I venture poor cyber awareness training on the part of organisations. It's a two-way street, and that has to be recognised. The International Monetary Fund has gone on record to say that cyber attackers are threatening financial stability. The interconnected nature of financial services creates a particular vulnerability. This survey was conducted over 51 countries where the IMF identified the following. 56% of the central banks or supervisory authorities do not have a national cyber strategy for the financial sector. 42% lack a dedicated cyber security or technology risk management regulation and 68% lack a specialist unit, a specialist risk unit, as part of their supervision department. 64% do not mandate testing and exercising cyber security measures or provide further guidance. 
54% lack a dedicated cyber incident reporting regime, and 48% do not have cybercrime regulations. Blog post on the story is linked in the podcast description and it's certainly worth a read. A couple of final stories now before we bid you goodbye until next week. The European Union Agency for Cybersecurity, ENISA as it's known, which is the bloc's agency for creating common levels of cybersecurity across its members, has produced two cybersecurity reports, the Embedded SIM Ecosystem Security Risks and Measures Report and the FOG and Edge Computing in 5G Report. Both can be found in the podcast description. And finally, this week, Commissioner Caroline Crenshaw of the United States Securities and Exchange Commission has made an extensive statement on amendments to Regulation SP, Cybersecurity Risk Management, and amendments to Regulation SCI. The link to the comments can be found in the podcast description. That's it for episode 50 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me all over again next week with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone.